This is the Power to Podcast, show 150. Micro interactions that we have, if we screw up a lesson, if we were short with a kid one day, they they are inconsequential as long as kids know and believe that you care. I think it's just, you know, stick with the process. I mean, you never know how far reaching the things that you think, say, or do are going to affect the lives of children tomorrow. Welcome to a real-world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Kennerman, host of the Power to Podcast, and I am here with my co-host, Mr. Matt, the Lucky Seven Rogers. Matt, how you doing, my friend? I'm great. I'm great. I missed you last week. I know. AK last night. Yeah, I mean, it is <laughs> it is what happens. I, uh, I don't know if we've shared this news, but uh, I'm expecting <clears throat> a baby girl come April. Um so this is my first it's a big deal it is a big deal um and i'm the only one expecting so that's really exciting yeah i uh i was i've, I've been waiting to use the uh, a dadism in in one of your nicknames so now i it's obviously not my news to share so i officially will be able to debut that that soon our, our listeners can can look forward to oh i can't wait maybe, maybe i can dadism all the way till till the moment of truth in uh, April, maybe, and maybe that I'll would be have impressive. To, maybe I'll have to give it back to you. Yeah, I mean, we're we're uh, we're going to be the the powered up powered up pals in terms of dads because I got an I got baby number four coming at the end of February. That's crazy. So yeah. very very exciting stuff. Uh, which... We're going to have to figure out how to keep the show going. <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure it out. If it's on hiatus, we apologize. Uh, yeah. It's gonna be it's gonna be bumpy, but you know, a lot there will of joy. be more than dogs shaking their leashes and backgrounds oh for for a short period of time, possibly. Uh, these episodes might get a little bit shorter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we had uh, we had two guests on our podcast tonight, and they were both fantastic. They they come from from different walks in terms of education. Uh, they they know each other personally. They work together. They're going to be working together more in the future. So we had. PJ Capozzi, who is a superintendent, and Brian Wills, who is a school board president and and a longtime school board member, and not related to education outside of that. He owns he's an entrepreneur and owns a owns his own businesses. So uh, the conversation really was just it was fantastic. It was I was incredibly engaged out of the gate till the, till the moment we wrapped up, and frankly after we finished recording. Yeah, and I think. To, to target the conversation, as a leader, you are a manager of people. Um, like that is a big responsibility. And obviously the joy a lot of times of being in this leadership role is having influence that trickles down to students. And we're gonna talk quite a bit about a personality test, which most districts do. I know it's involved in our 
new teacher induction for anyone coming in to as well as a lot of businesses but actually uh, Enneagram which is something I knew from more social media based for um, light and fun and you know whimsical ways but a pretty interesting conversation with both of these guys that have pretty deep knowledge and how they use that information to make strategic and helpful conversation or decisions. Um, they target it in their coaching uh, responsibilities as much as their managing of businesses, which I think is pretty wild. Yeah, it was very interesting, and I, and I will say it, it comes out early in the show when we when we start to talk about the Enneagram test. Matt was familiar with it; he's taken it. Uh, he's him and his wife have done it together. Obviously, PJ and and Brian have decades of experience in in using it and supporting other leaders and other teachers and athletic coaches in taking the test and utilizing it as well. I had never heard of it. Uh, I, I really don't know how. I guess um, I, I was familiar with. Uh, the personality test of colors and and the disc uh, as well. So I will say for our listeners, I don't think there's any reason that you need to pause and educate yourself on uh, what the Enneagram personality test is. I, I think the show does a good job of of outlining it. Um, I, I plan on doing more reading now myself afterwards, um, but I, I don't think there's any reason. And I come, I say this as a person that didn't know throughout the conversation, I don't think there's any reason for you to kind of pause and put the show on hiatus before you do a little bit of research. I, I would let this be your entry point into exposure to it if you've never heard of it. So uh, yeah, it was just a great conversation. So I, I really don't want to delay it any further with just banter between you and I. So let's uh, check in and hear from Teach Better and let's jump right into our conversation with Pete. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Hi, PJ and Brian. Welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. How are you guys doing tonight? Very well. How about yourself? We're doing great. We're doing great. We are, we're really excited to have you here. Uh, Matt, I'm actually trying to think back. I don't ever remember, other than our summer series, when we inv when we invite um, some of our former guests back for a specific topic. I don't think we've ever had a a dual guest show, so I'm I'm excited to to jump into this with you guys. So to kick things off, I would like both of you to officially introduce yourselves. Let our audience know where you're coming from. Give us a snapshot of of your career in education, your relation to education. I know you both come from different backgrounds that have, uh, have kind of joined you two together. So uh, just, you know, uh, kick it off, let our audience get to know you a little bit, and then we'll, we'll jump into this a little bit more. Uh, so I'm Dr. Brian Wills. Uh, I'm a chiropractor in Northern Illinois. I'm also the school board president at uh, Oregon uh, School District. Uh, been the president, I think, for the last seven years, been on the school board actually for the last 14 years, I think. Um, uh, I've opened up uh, uh, three different chiropractic offices. Um, PJ and I have known each other for, I don't know, quite a while now, I think, through our, through our kids and uh, uh, through the uh, educational system a little bit. And we decided to uh, write a book to help um, not only athletic coaches, but just people in general uh, connect with kids and uh, um, help themselves achieve more. Great. I am PJ Capozzi. I am superintendent of schools, um, Radian 223, a small town rural district in northwest Illinois. 
Uh, I'm in my 11th year there. Uh, prior to that, I was principal in Oregon, um, where Brian is currently school board president for four years. And prior to that, all of my experience was in urban education. So I went um, straight from urban or inner city straight into small town and rural. So that was a kind of a dramatic shift. Um, this, uh, as well as being a superintendent, I get to travel around and speak and consult. And this is uh, my ninth book that I've uh, been able to put out and, and try to make an impact. So it's it's an interesting dynamic, I would say, possibly now more than more than it's ever been having school board president, superintendent uh, on together, collaborating together. Um, you know, I, I don't really want to spend much time talking about uh, about things that are going on in our world right now because it's not really beneficial for our time together. But what would you say has been a a positive aspect of your positions in education, both collaborating together, uh, but also just in conjunction with working with teachers from the positions you're in that you feel has a direct impact on the benefit of students? Well, in addition to the fact that uh, we, we have those positions, uh, interestingly enough, next year I'm leaving my district to go work for Brian as well. Um, so th this will get even, even more uh, kind of tangled web I will say that um, it, in my experience, whenever I can work with my school board to be a partner in what we're doing, um, and when I say what we're doing, I mean that's all the way down to uh, the teacher and student level, the more successful the work that we can do. Um, and I've been very fortunate in the district I'm in where our board feels that way. They come in and do lunch duty if we're short. Um, we did construction one year and we're trying to open the buildings and they were helping me clean bathrooms the day before. So they are, are hands-on in the good way. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I cannot um, understate the importance of having the board as a, as a partner um, in the process, as opposed to kind of this like unstated cloud of just boss, right? Um, the, the more that we can humanize them, the more that I think that uh, we can get some really good work done. And the more that we humanize them, the more connection they have with staff and with kids, which then I, I believe tends to focus the decision-making back to staff and kids, which is where it belongs, as opposed to just community pressure. Uh, for me, my, uh, my entire family uh, teaches. So my mom is uh, in her 50th year of teaching, if you can believe that. Um, my aunt uh, taught in the school district that I uh, am president in. Um, I both, both my cousins teach. Um, so I think for, from my perspective, you know, just having the perspective of what teachers actually go through, I think has helped me a, a tremendous amount in just connecting with, um, you know, our, our union and our, and our members uh, to help them get better and understand their needs, uh, you know, what they're kind of going through. I know with uh, the, the pandemic that's hit and things like that, you know, teachers have been kind of getting beat up here and, and since my whole family teaches, I obviously, every holiday, I get cornered and uh, told exactly what's going on. So uh, but that unique perspective has kind of given me, uh, again, a closer um, connection with our, with our staff, which I think it helps, helps out a ton. If I, I mean, again, feel free to call this naive. Ken, we have never had the chance to talk to, I believe, a superintendent, let alone a member of a school board. So is there any chance that you guys can both enlighten us about what are the, not necessarily responsibilities, but just what are the tugs that you deal with in your role that we, from the teacher side of things, 
often scoff and say, if only they knew what was going in my classroom. Like, I don't think you guys get credit enough for your knowledge of education. It's just, you have so many things that you need to balance. So how do you, A, balance that, or are there misconceptions that you could clean up about both of your roles? Uh, so how long you got? I'll just jump into an ex- a real world example from today. Um, so we had, uh, we have some of our teachers that are upset because, um, based on staffing numbers, which changed from the outset of the year, um, due to, to move-ins that there's a belief that we are underserving four kids of a special population. And, uh, so they were very frustrated that I didn't want to hire a teacher to serve four kids. And so for, for me, that's a, that's a $70,000 expense that then would supersede any other things that we want to add to serve potentially 150 kids. And I think in those moments is when the big picture gets lost and sometimes district office or the board becomes the enemy because it's, um, if it's a no, and in this case, it might not even end up being a no, but if it ends up being a no, it's that we don't care about those four kids or we don't care about the additional workload we've put on the teacher. It's not that it's if I add that, that at some point I'm going to have to let somebody go. And, and, it, and, and those things add up. Like, and it's not that humans are a spreadsheet. And I think that we both run our districts in a way that our, our staff would say that, but at the end of the day, the spreadsheet still has to balance. And um, with all of the inputs coming in from so many different directions, I think sometimes um, that is lost. Um, when, when I first became a superintendent, one of my first meetings, I had to let go of 26 people to make payroll because if not, we we're going to get shut down. And so in that moment, I took away 26 people's livelihood. I'm 30 years old, terminating people that are older than me, that have been, that some that had worked in the district as long as I've been alive in order to make payroll. And it took years, I think, for the district to understand that, right? And, and some of the, the populace. So those are the things. And like, those are those are sleepless nights. And um, like, it's the, the, the pleasure of the job, but also the pressure of the job. And I just think sometimes um, I'm married to a teacher. So I, I, I when I say sometimes, like, I, I get it, right? Like, she's like, well, why is this happening? This is stupid. I'm like, well, I'm guessing there's 14 things that led to this happening. And so the trickle down to you may be stupid. And we need to talk about that and figure out how we can get it better. But I guarantee you the plan wasn't just to annoy you. I promise you the plan wasn't like at no point did the board or the superintendent, because she works in a different district, sit down and say, hey, how can we mess with junior high teachers today? Like that wasn't the outset. And if it ended up being that way, then we'd still need to talk about it because sometimes that happens, right? Sometimes that's the best laid plan. Um, it's just never the intent. So, Brian, I, I'd love to hear from you as a follow-up. Just a, a quick follow-up to that, PJ. I, I'm now an instructional coach, so a lot of my day is spent still in the classroom supporting teachers, but my desk is in district office. I'm in meetings at least once a week with our supervisors, assistant superintendents, with principals. And sometimes a lot of the discussion is how do we convey the message to the teachers so that when they see this decision or when they see this result, they know what that that starting point was, that why. Is there anything in particular that you've done and, and you've learned over your, your course as a superintendent and even as a principal that you feel has effectively helped with that proactively a little bit? It's always going to happen, but a little bit that, that you feel is beneficial for others to, to think for, about? For me, the biggest support in that is our union's executive leadership sits on my leadership team. 
So at every element of, you know, the sausage being made or whatever terrible analogy you want to use, they're there saying, hey, have you guys thought about this? Um, it's just the self-check because, again, I, I've never met an administrator that just wants to make someone else's life harder, right? Like it's always for an outcome. But if you're not at the – no matter how open-minded I find people to think they are, and I, I like to fancy myself as open-minded too – once you're seven meetings in and six hours into the plan, it's hard to be truly open-minded about it when you get the first critique. When you're seven minutes in and get the first critique and, and somebody goes, whoa, 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 have you thought about how this is going to impact? It's much easier to tweak it at that level. So just having our union leadership, again, to use the word I used before at the board, as a partner in and saying, hey, get where you want to go. Have you considered early has, um, I mean, quite literally saved me tons of time, effort, energy, political capital, because there are things that I really wanted to do that I thought were really smart and really good for kids and really good for staff that would have been a disaster if we didn't tweak them seven times before we got there. To launch into Brian, I had a, a friend of mine who was on a school board for a much shorter amount of time, um, and I'm sure had a lot less impact than you had. But he conveyed that teaching and education is not a money-making venture. So when talking about budget, it's not like you work a little bit harder and then there's a little bit more bills to pay or there's more money to pay the bills. You can hire more teachers. There's a fixed amount that's coming in and you're not really um, able to increase that besides you know, being smarter. So from your side of things, you know, how are you managing coming into a meeting that you know uh, has a huge ripple effect on an entire district? Well, I guess the, one of the hardest parts of being on the school board is that, that you know, the, unless you're on a school board, you really don't understand, um, you know, what goes into it or how the money is spent. Um, so like, I'm an entrepreneur, so I just, you know, if I want to make more money, I just, you know, work a little harder. Um, in a school district, there's only, the pie is only so big. And, you know, I think the general public obviously thinks, oh, just work a little harder and you guys can make more money. And, you know, that's not the way that it works. There's only so much of the pie there. So a lot of a lot of communication is involved with, you know, working with the unions to get them to understand that the pie is only so big. So if we give our teachers, you know, X percent raise, that's taken away from the pie that our support staff can get. Um, and sometimes those conversations can, you know, get a little bit tough. But, you know, if you, if you build a good rapport with both, you know, we have two unions, a support staff union and our, and our teacher union. If you build a good rapport with both of them, you kind of work together, understand that, hey, this is this is the reality where we're at. Um, we need to work together to figure out the you know, the best scenario possible. Um, you know, the advantage of me is that, you know, again, my, with my whole family being teachers, I understand that teachers don't make a fraction of what they should make for the impact they have on on students' lives. So, you know, I'm always going to advocate as much as I can to, you know, get our teachers as much as they can get within, you know, fiscal responsibility of the district. Can you just add to it, what is your role as part of the school board uh, besides just showing up at seven o'clock for a school board meeting, right? Like what, what is, what are you doing for education as, you know, you obviously have a, another outside responsibility that is important to you. What are you doing and what are your requirements and responsibilities uh, ongoing um, besides just uh, possibly being yelled at by a community member or what have you. 
we're, we're only going to hear from community members if there's a bad, something bad going on. We never hear yeah. anything good. So when we go to a meeting, there's no one in there. We know we're doing a good job. When there's a lot of people there, then we know we start sweating that some, something's going on there. So the biggest responsibility for the board is just to understand that, you know, we're not micromanagers. I think the, the worst thing that can happen with uh, board members, they start trying to think that they're educators. I mean, I'm a chiropractor. I'm an entrepreneur. I know a lot about business. I know a lot about chiropractic. I don't know hardly anything about educating kids. And uh, when the school shut down for that three months in 2020, I learned very rapidly that I really don't understand how to educate kids at all because I struggled hard with uh, my uh, third grader and, and first grader during that whole time. Um, the biggest thing is we're, you know, we're trying to you know, set policy at the school. The only employee that we have is the superintendent. You know, we don't hire and fire staff, you know, which is kind of a popular belief amongst uh, the, the public that, you know, we can just snap our fingers and, you know, fire this teacher or this coach. Um, and, you know, as long as the board focuses on, you know, the superintendent is our only employee, you know, our job is to set policy. His job is to enforce that policy. Um, you know, that was, that's what I think it makes a good, good district and, and allows the superintendent to do his job, which is to, you know, uh, steer the ship, so to speak. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So um, I, I want to transition into, you know, what, what first um, landed us being here together is, is, uh, is your book. So I'd uh, PJ, I know you've written multiple books. So at any time, you know, I would love to hear about those as well. But just give us a, a quick idea of what your book is about together and, and, you know, what started that journey together. And then I know there's a lot of specific topics in there that I want to want to jump into with you guys. So, yeah, so uh, PJ actually approached me about, it was about a year ago, I think, year and a half ago, um, about writing a book. Um, you know, I'm just an idiot chiropractor, so I'm like, how do you even write a book? You know, he's written nine of them, so um, I kind of leaned on him quite a bit. But uh, uh, we've known each other for a while. We're, you know, big sports nuts, uh, love watching sports, love playing sports. And uh, we're also um, kind of big into the Enneagram, which is a, kind of a, a personality growth tool. Uh, that both of us have used uh, quite extensively in, in our in our careers, and we thought, well, you know, how do we kind of shape this into something that uh, the educational world can could use? Because there's nothing like that out there. You know, we can, um, especially for like athletic coaches uh, and things like that. There's tons of X's and O's that you can get online and those types of things. But the real, you know, the relationship building, the the personal growth aspect of it, which is pretty much the most important part of the job, um, there's nothing out there, you know, for uh, as professional development for that. Um, the Enneagram is, you know, nine personality types. Uh, I've used it for the last 20 years in every business that I've, I've done in my personal life as well, um, just to help me discover who I am and, uh, you know, all the self-sabotaging behaviors that I have that prevent me from being, you know, successful only in business, but my, my personal life as well. Um, even though the book is kind of geared more towards, you know, the athletic side of things, uh, you know, teachers could get a lot of this as well, because obviously, you know, we all have these behaviors, this autopilot that we're on that, you know, we, we do the same dumb things over and over again. The Enneagram is a tool to help us understand that, what we do, and also help us to not do that anymore, um, to stop holding ourselves back. Yeah, I nailed it. It's anytime you sit down to write a book, it's a process. Um, writing a book with somebody else, um, I've co-written with, with several different people. It is it's a test to the relationship, right? Like it either gets stronger or, uh, or weakens through the, through the process. I think that we, we found our rhythm pretty quickly and it, it went fairly well, um, as well as it's, it's gone with any um, co-author I've had, but it's, it's always an interesting process. Um, and I think Brian is underselling his Enneagram expertise a little bit. So, um, 
I, I've leveraged Enneagram and I use it and it's been very, very meaningful to me um, at the, the leadership and, and professional level, but Brian is truly an expert in it. Um, and so as we sat down, um, it's, it was a collaborative effort, but I think he's underscoring his expertise a little bit. So I'd, I'd love to start there with the, the Enneagram because that's a, a personality uh, type or test that, I, that I've never heard of. I'm familiar with uh, one that I took in graduate school that uh, labeled people as four different colors, yellow, blue, orange, uh, green. I, I don't know what the framework of that is. And from podcasts and other things outside of education that I, that I listen to, I don't, I'm not familiar with the name is, but there was another distinction of personality type. So I've never heard of this one before. So I'm very interested, Brian and PJ, as to what it is about this type of personality test and distinction of these nine categories that really uh, gravitated you towards it and also how you see that connection being so vital to teachers. I'll start and, and then Brian can get deeper um, just because he's, he's more of an expert in it. Uh, so I love personality profiles. So I've taken, you, you name it, whether it be DISC or Myers-Briggs or Strengths Finder or whichever, Disc, whichever the, the brand is, um, I, I've taken all of them. And uh, Enneagram was just different. Um, when, I, when I took it, uh, it was the first one that didn't tell me who I was. It told me what behaviors I did that helped lead to my outcomes. So I feel like most personality programs or assessments will tell you, this is who you are. What Enneagram says is this is how you tend to behave. And if it's leading to all of the outcomes in your life that you could ever imagine, then great, just stay stuck in this spot on autopilot. If not, be aware that most likely this is what's triggering some of these behaviors. Um, and it also says like, like in situations of stress or situations of health, this is how your personality profile tends to operate a little bit differently. And it was the first one for me, um, how I fell in love with Enneagram would be that it, it pointed out blind spots to me. Um, so the having a personality profile and reading like, oh, you are a strong, assertive leader, like feels great, right? Like that's wonderful, but it doesn't help me get better. Um, and so when I was reading about Enneagram, I was pretty skeptical. I was about two months into kind of my study on it. And I was reading something about my type and it, it said that uh, I'm a type eight. A type eight can come across condescending in meetings. And uh, at this point, I was pretty, you know, my team and I were very close, I thought. And so we get done with a, a meeting. I said, hey, one thing before we go. Like, yeah, I'm like, hey, do I come across condescending meetings? Because I've wanted to be lots of things in meetings, right? Like I wanted to be assertive. I wanted to be direct. I wanted to be funny. I wanted to be, I've never once said, hey, you know what? I want to be condescending jerk today. Like that's never been something that crossed my mind. And I said, you know, do I come across condescending? And it was bobbleheads just shaking their head yes. And all of a sudden I was like, okay, I found a tool that just without the tool doesn't know me, right? It's an arbitrary outside tool who can now give me feedback that if I'm willing to take it, can help me understand that I never have wanted to come across condescending in a meeting. And if I can know that now, that is a thing that I might do, I can correct those behaviors and start to become a better leader and, and serve my people a little bit better. Um, and that's when I fell in love with Enneagram. And so Brian can get much deeper on it, I'm sure, but um, that's kind of was my gateway into it and, and why I'm pretty passionate about it. And, and I, you know, I, I, I'm the same way. I took in all of the personality tests. I mean, I, I kind of eat that stuff up. Uh, you know, I love the, the personal growth aspect of it. And the reason that Enneagram really spoke to me uh, is because there's so many different flavors of uh, with the Enneagram. I mean, you know, you do, do DISC or Briggs-Myers that kind of put you in a box, like you're either this or you're that. You know, with the Enneagram, there's, it allows for flow. Like, like PJ was talking about when you're stressed, 
you know, even if you're a type eight, you're going to act differently than you do when you're healthy. Um, you know, and also you can have different um, traits of other personality types in that. So it just allows for different flavors of, of personality types so that we can be like PJ and I are the same Enneagram type. Um, my mentor um, is eight as well, but he is a different side of an eight. So if he was on this podcast, he would sound and look totally different than PJ and I, even though all three of us are the same Enneagram type. So there's just so many flavors. Just, just dig deeper into the, into the personality profile. Like PJ said, it, it really opens up a window of what we do to sabotage our own our own success. And you know, when we're healthy and, and moving in the right direction, that's it gives you an aiming point to this is this is what I should be, this is how I should behaving be behaving. And when I do behave that way, then I'm healthy, I'm happy, and I'm going the right direction. When I behave this way, obviously I'm stressed and and probably coming off condescending or um, you, you know, sabotaging my own success a little bit with that. I think it's interesting. Uh, first off, Ken, that you didn't know about Enneagram. I mean, you're married. Uh, I got quizzed on a, a road trip, you know, it felt like two and a half years ago. And ever since I've been blamed and, oh, must be that Enneagram seven in you. So, um, I am, I am feeling that, that, uh, that kind of nature of, of how, a placement in this category. And it does to me feel like what I've learned through Enneagrams and even the social media side of things of, oh, those are tactics or uh, traditional attributes. I have a friend of mine who uh, for a social media company put out like uh, style uh, type decision-making based off their Enneagram style was so into it that could say, I have a feeling I could pick what you like to wear or your style. And it's crazy how accurate some of these things are and how deep, you know, makes you almost have this uncomfortable knowledge of someone before you really even know them. You hearing their number gives you so much general feedback that is pretty reliable. Um, and you guys can first speak if you feel that way, but I'd also love to kind of hear, you know, how do you both utilize that in your team building? Um, is that more individual recognizing the downfalls or spreading out and having a little bit of each Enneagram type to create a balanced team? So I know that's two very different questions. <laughs> so I, I'll go first on this one. So I, I, use the Enneagram to you know build three different uh, chiropractic offices here in Illinois. And I, before I interview anybody, I always make them take an Enneagram test to, to kind of see where they're going to fall in that, in that, that spectrum there. And I've been doing like the Enneagram for so long that I'm pretty good at interviewing people and figuring out kind of where their Enneagram type is. And I hire whatever position I'm hiring for, I absolutely hire for the Enneagram for that position. Um, you know, I can teach, uh, this sounds awful, but I always tell people I can teach a monkey to do anything. Um, but I can't change your personality type. So, you know, as somebody that's seven, like yourself, if you're, you know, kind of the fly by the seat of your pants and uh, kind of uh, running all over the place, I don't want that person doing my books, right? Because I'll, I'll go broke in a hurry. Um, I don't want to hire an eight like myself, who's very demanding and controlling at my front desk, where if somebody's 30 seconds late for an appointment, they're going to get yelled at by the, the front desk. You know, obviously, I'm not going to have too many patients with that. So, you know, we absolutely put people in positions to be successful based off their Enneagram type. And uh, we even use it with our patients. Um, we try to type our patients as well because people, you know, speak the language of their Enneagram. So if I'm talking to a patient, trying to educate them about what's going on with them and what they need to get well, 
I need to make sure that I'm speaking their language. Um, if I'm talking to PJ, then it's going to be a very fast, quick, you know, short conversation to the point. If I'm talking to someone like my wife, who happens to be a six, then it's going to be a much longer conversation, and I'm going to give her some space to make a decision. Um, and uh, in doing that, it's just made, make things so much easier uh, from a business perspective. And even from the board, you know, we always uh, we have everybody take the test on the, on the school board as well, because if we're you know, going to communicate about some big issue. I want to make sure we know where everybody's coming from, uh, you know, from their, from their personalities. So our experience in, in my district has been a little bit different. Uh, when I introduced Enneagram, I didn't want to force it on people because it feels intrusive, right? Like if, if you're not ready for it, I, like I, I just felt like it was going to be a lot. And so introduced it to my, my leadership team, had everyone take it. And I said to him, like, if you guys are into this, I can help you coach you if you allow me to through this lens if you're not into it then we will never speak of this again essentially was how it laid out and so really like one of my like 17 direct reports took me up on it and so i was like all right this was kind of a dud now internally was i figuring out their behavioral practices and what they kind of lent through type wise yes even though i always warn and caution that trying to type people is dangerous but about three years after that experience um, one of my principal's sons came back from college and was on fire about Enneagram. She's like, hey, didn't we do this? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, can we do it again? I said, you can bring it up. I said, but I promised everyone I wasn't going to bring it up again. So she brought it up. And then all of a sudden, everyone caught fire with it. There was just a lot more trust with the team. I think people were ready to be a little bit more vulnerable. Um, and from there, the teachers caught wind of it. So now pretty much everyone in our district has taken it, but it's all been voluntary. We haven't made anyone take it. Um, we now, when we're hiring people at what would be our executive level, I have them take it, but I don't use it in the way that Brian does, where I'm looking for a type. What I'm looking for to see is that the person is self-aware enough to understand who they are. So if, if they're giving me answers if, that are incredibly direct and short, then like my head saying, this might be an eight, this might be, and if they're saying, no, no, like all I care about is risk management or whatever, like it might be a completely different. So I am just checking to see if there's self-awareness, whether I have all types on my team, except for a type four, I don't have any type fours. Um, and we're successful, right? Like, and now that hasn't been intentional, but I will say like, I love being around eights. Eights tend to like being around eights because we're direct, it's quick. But if I had a whole district leadership team of eights, we'd run this thing into the ground. Like it just wouldn't work, right? Like, so there is some self-awareness about that, but I think that would come out in an interview anyway, right? Like you can't have a bunch of bold, decisive, controlling, authoritarian, like leaders in a room, like it's just not going to work well um, it, collectively. Now two is one thing, but 12 is a different. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of our experience with it. So I'm feeling very alone right now as the only one coming into this, this uh, conversation, having no idea about this. So I hope there's one listener out there that can at least relate to me. And, and Brian, I'm going to challenge you on your expertise. And I'm going to ask you to predict my, my number before this, this conversation is over. You probably already know what it is just by the way you're looking at me. Um, but so the translation for, and PJ, you were kind of leading into this, the translation for a teacher, so, or an athletic coach. Uh, so uh, I, I like the idea or I've already taken it myself um, I'm familiar with it, or I become familiar with it. I take the test and I start to recognize it and pay attention to it. So how do I use it to benefit my students or my athletes to one, do I get them involved? Do I, do I test them and bring them into the conversation? And maybe age level has a, 
has a, 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 a way in on, on how you answer that question, but like, what is the process for me uh, as a teacher or a coach to really use this information to benefit the growth of my students? And so my, my answer athletes? makes it sound like a non-answer, but it, to me, the intention of Enneagram is self-development, self-mastery. And, and so the, the more that I can be aware of myself, the more that I can um, ensure that my behaviors align with the outcomes I desire. Like one of the things that Enneagram has taught me is like, I am not my personality. My personality is my personality, but I get to choose my behaviors so that I can be a better leader and serve better. So the, the way that I would coach through at the beginning with anyone going through it, whether it be uh, a business executive or person, it, it would be almost solely about self-mastery. And so once we get through that and there, if the person's fallen in love with the tool, like I did, found their blind spots, found a ton of value in it, then of course they're going to want to share it with those that they serve. Um, and so for me at that level, it, it would be great. But if, if Brian and I were coming in and consulting at a district right now and working with athletic programs, like uh, the intent is through, through this work, it would be about the coaches first. Now, once the coaches get it, if they get on fire, they're going to want to expose their kids to it. Like that's just the natural progression and that is fine. But for, for me, the focus is largely about let's get to know ourselves because there's lots of layers to our onions, man. Like we, there's lots of like, there's depth there. And so to use it from the, the teacher perspective is like, all right, um, I'll use my wife who's a seven. So she has a really hard time sticking to a scope and sequence because she'll read a new article or find a new text or find this. And all of a sudden is getting distracted from all of these things. And then deadlines come due and she's super stressed. Well, like that's super predictable seven behavior. So I'm not sure if that sounds familiar, Matt or not, but like, so at some point she can become more self-aware as to her sabotaging behaviors that are making her life more, more difficult and not leading her to what she wants as her goal. And she can start to intervene. She doesn't have to behave like that. Um, and so that's where I would stick start with any, any leader, teacher, coach, whoever it happens to be. And then if they want to take it down to the kid level, then I think there's tons of value there, but that would be secondary for me. Yeah, one of the things that I, I've been thinking a lot about lately, I've, uh, you know, as far as from the Enneagram uh, perspective, uh, and I can't remember where I heard this from, but basically the higher level you go in like competition or business or your your profession, the less um, important the talent is because, it, you know, the higher up you go, everybody's talented, right? So we have a lot of teachers, or we've had, I think, three in our district teachers that have become, you know, administrators and then gone back down to teaching after a few years because they just couldn't couldn't do it right so when they when they got up to that administrator level there a lot of the habits and, and behaviors they had when they were teachers wouldn't fly but they weren't self-aware enough to understand that that's what was holding them back and they ended up burning out so they just went back down to where they were comfortable at you know if you use it from a athletic perspective you know i went i played college football there's some you know small division three school but when I left my high school, I was the biggest, fastest, you know, best football player in our school. And then I went to a team where I had a hundred other guys that were the be biggest, best and fastest guys in the team. And the only differentiation was, you know, I knew, you know, my, my, my self-awareness was much higher than some other guys were. So I got the start, even though, you know, talent wise, it's pretty much the same. You know, we've all seen, you know, guys in college just dominate in college and get the NFL and just wash out you know, because all the talent level is the same, but uh, guys like, you know, Tom Brady, for instance, not the, you know, greatest athlete in the world, but the dude is just self-aware. I mean, he's one of the most authentic people in the world and he knew what his strengths were, knew what his weaknesses were, and, you know, was uber successful because of that. Um, and I think that's, 
kind of where, you know, we were thinking of, you know, first and foremost is building yourself up, building the teacher up, building the coach up, and then having it trickle down, like PJ said, to the, to the students and the athletes. If it gives any perspective as an Enneagram seven, I was a, I competed in college in the decathlon um, because when I would get tired of one event, practicing one event, I would just make up your mind. Totally you different one. Do, right? yeah. Exactly. The book. Yeah. So, I mean, it is, oh, it is, it is unbelievable. I would get tired, you know, I'm not having a great shot put day. So, you know, let's go try our hand at long jump or, you know, work on hurdle drills. So, I think it's it's. I would love for uh, us because Ken, if I'm in your seat, I'm like this is hokey and crazy, and you know this is like every other uh, personality test, and being into it, but not from an educational point of view or a coaching point of view, I get the validity from the point of. Um, like inconsequential decisions. The idea of using it strategically seems like to really ramp up the credibility of Enneagram. And I, I think that might just be because I don't have enough research to really completely trust it, even though everything I've seen has been pretty accurate. Um, so how did you guys come to the point? Now, Brian, you said you've been really into this for a long time. How did you find yourself uh, completely trusting? When what was that threshold to say, you know, this is a helpful tool to, you know, I can really, really depend on it for decision making. So I think when it, when it struck me is, you know, again, twenty years ago I was kind of introduced to it, and um, yeah, I've been married for twenty one now. So my first year in marriage, I did not have the, you know, the uh, have an, uh, advantage of the uh, enneagram. Um, and you know, like any new relationship, you know, we'd have disagreements and things like that. And then when I, um, got introduced to it, um, the, the gentleman introduced me to it, uh, met my, my, my wife and I, and said, you know, I bet you guys, when you guys argue, you argue a lot about, you know, X, Y, or Z. And we both kind of looked at each other, like, how the heck do you know that? You know, like he was kind of just reading out what we were doing there. And I really noticed it probably about a year into studying it, you know, my relationship with my wife went to a whole different level. Um, my wife's a six. So, you know, as an eight, I'm a ready fire aim type of guy, right? I'm, I'm making decisions pretty quickly. As a six, my wife is the ready aim, 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 aim. She never fires, right? So when we had to make, when we're in business together, she's also a chiropractor as well. So we're in business together. Um, you know, we make decisions. I've already made my decision yesterday about what I wanted to do today. And she's got to take 10 days to make that decision. So where there was a constant friction between us, you know, I was trying to push her to make a decision and then when she would just shut down and I would get angry and, you know, it was a, a whole mess. And then we started realizing that, you know, I just need to let her know how I feel and then back off and let her, you know, ruminate on the whole thing. And then she'll come to me with her answer. And she also understands that, hey, if there's a big decision we got to make right now, that she's going to speed her process up or just let me make, make the choice. And our business just you know, our relationship got much better, but our business just exploded because we began to work together as opposed to kind of working, you know, separate like we were for the first you know, year or two that we were, we were practice and we were married together. So that's when I, I mean, just became a huge believer because I just saw it happen in front of my eyes that uh, how much our business and our relationship, our personal relationship had changed 
just from using the uh, the enneagram. I would I would say if somebody said that to me, Matt, I would say that you should be skeptical. I, I so I deeply believe in it. It has helped me in a number of ways, um, but I think anytime we're talking about really anything, like we should be going into it with thinking critically. Is this really the holy grail to how we interact, or is this just a, a tool? And what I would say is that even if it is just a tool, right? Like, so even if it's at its lowest common denominator, it is still immensely useful. And I would say for me as a leader, what it has helped me do is to ask dramatically better questions um, about what things are, are driving behavior. And so um, what I have found at least is, in, is that most behavior that when, when most leaders come to me, it's not when they're dominating, right? It's when they've hit a wall and they're struggling. And so it's usually one of two things. One, it's that they've done the same behavior for years and years and years that have got them to a level of success. And now those behaviors are no longer allowing them to be successful anymore. And so now we have to figure out where that's going. This has been, again, whether it's an executive in the, in the private sector, a principal, a teacher, whatever it is, like, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Like we hear it all the time. The kids have changed. Well, what teachers are saying is like, I've done this before and it's been successful. It's not successful anymore. And so it's helping them figure out what behaviors they are reliant on unconsciously. Like, why are they behaving this way? Are they thinking through critically what they're doing? So that's the, the first kind of, of realm of which I would, I would want to walk people through if they, if they were skeptical. The second is, is just simply this. I believe a lot of people, when they're running into those walls, it's their behavior is based on something, but they can't quite articulate what it is. And so most of that is out of a certain type of fear. And so for me, it's allowing, now I won't ever typically ask someone, well, what are you afraid of, right? But I can ask the questions like, what is motivating? So like for me, my, my biggest fear is not to have influence or control over my own environment. So whenever I feel like that is stifled, then I become the worst possible version of myself, right? And so knowing that now when I'm working with an eight, I know that I have to provide them some level of autonomy in order to elicit peak performance in them. Now, to go to your original question, is there a danger in that? No. Right. Like if, if I make the decision to say, hey, this person needs more autonomy and that wasn't the right personality profile or didn't quite work for them or autonomy is not their love language. Like, is there any real harm in asking better questions and giving people maybe more free? Like, so for me at the strategic level, it's it's human to human. I know that I've become a much better coach. Um, and the reason I know that is like of my direct reports, 17 direct reports, nobody's left in a decade. Right. And we've had a lot of success. So like, I think it's working, right? Like the, 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 the method is, is, is tending, is tending to work. Um, and so I just think it's a very potentially high reward, low risk mechanism tool that you can use. Um, does it fit for me as a framework through which I see human interaction? Largely it does, but it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm adhered to it blindly. I, I still, believe in it deeply. I still am cynical and skeptical um, of all things when it says they can be used for X, Y, or Z. I think that's really powerful. And and the last question that we ask, we have a, a standard four questions that we end our show with is it's going to kind of hit on this. And it's at, at the very minimal, like you said, applying it to yourself, it's, it's self-improvement or it's just creating more self-awareness. And I think I, so I was working with a new teacher a couple of weeks ago who reached out to me to set up a time for me to watch him teach. And then he wanted me to come in and 
offer some ideas and then lead a couple lessons for him to watch. And this was, this is all usually part of the new teacher plan, but sometimes it takes longer to get to those new teachers. Um, and, and this year we have more new teachers. And so I was really impressed with this teacher reaching out to me. And, and one of the things I said to him, I said, if you can be reflective in your practice, you're going to be a great teacher because a reflective teacher is one that is evaluating what they're doing, what, how they're interacting with students and, and continuing to improve. And, and that was, I think my best attribute as a classroom teacher was my ability to be reflective. And just thinking about this idea, not only reflecting on my instructional style and the way I'm organizing materials and the way I'm differentiating for students. There's so many things to reflect on as a teacher, but also evaluating how I am carrying myself as a person and how I'm using these, these traits that you're outlining, my strengths and my weaknesses and how I act when I'm in, a, in good health and in bad health. So it just gives us a bigger picture to be able to use that reflective practice as a teacher. I think that's, that's so powerful. And then if you can get to the level, you know, like Brian and PJ, you're talking about, about being able to recognize this in people, whether or not you're taking that personality test, knowing how to just address a student who's having behavior problems in your classroom. If you have some idea of their number, if they need that autonomy, right? That's not always the thing we go to for a student that is a behavior problem in our classroom. Giving them more autonomy is not a common practice for a teacher but if you have an inkling that that kid's an eight, it sounds like that might be exactly what they need to address that behavior concern. So I can really see how this can have a ripple effect in our ability to support the growth of our students because it's not just about the content and the curriculum, but it's about setting them up for success and, and recognizing that I think is so important. So the one thing I wanted to ask you guys just in, in general about coaching and the relation to teaching. What are you, what do you think are lessons that teachers can learn from coaching sports? And I would even say music and, and different and, you know, running a theater program or, you know, running the drama club, what can they learn from leading those types of teams and organizations that you think recycles back to the classroom and has such a great impact on how they work and how they interact with students in the so classroom. I'll, I'll not answer it at first. Uh, give, before, oh, I'm give, sorry. Me give me one second, PJ, just to kind of follow up with what you're talking about there, that teacher that asked, you know, for that feedback. I, I think one of the biggest things that we haven't touched on tonight about the Enneagram though, is that it, it kind of makes you, you know, become vulnerable, right? Like uh, allowing yourself to be vulnerable to get feedback, um, I, I think is huge. You know, once you start understanding some of your, you know, your, again, your self-sabotaging behaviors, it becomes easier to ask, you know, like it becomes easier for me to ask PJ, Hey, give me some feedback on this. You know, how, how am I doing on this stuff without fear that he's going to be, you know, making fun of me or whatever. I'm, I can just accept that feedback. And I think vulnerability is a huge, huge thing that you know, is a buzzword right now, but it really is a, is the key to being successful as a coach, you know, understand that you don't know everything and you, you, you have blind spots. And if you, if you don't really, you know, understand what those are and start to identify those, that, that's what really holds you back, especially as a teacher. Um, you know, if you keep, um, if you keep making the same mistakes over and over again, you're never going to get any better. Yeah. So, so to, to not answer your question, then get to answering your question, Ken. So the, the, uh, one of the reasons that I was really excited and wanted to write the book and, and approached Brian about it is at the end of the year, I do exit interviews with each of our seniors 
And one of the questions I ask him is who had the greatest impact on you? And a disproportionate amount of responses was for us were coaches and not all positive because it wasn't who had the best impact on you. I'd say who had the be- the greatest total impact. And so it came to me like, okay, our coaches have this disproportional impact. I am the leader of this school system. And essentially if somebody passes a background check, I give them keys and tell them good luck. Right. And, and so like, we're doing nothing to help support them, even though these people are having a disproportionate impact on the kids and, as a former athlete, right? Like I know that if I had a really rough game, I brought that back into me first period the next day, right? Or if my coach chewed me, like, so all of those things played together. And I felt so like almost ashamed that I hadn't considered this more as to what we're doing to help serve our, our coaches. So that was kind of part of the impetus. So I, like, I truly see that it's like, if we believe in whole child, right? Like we're whole school as well in terms of, of trying to interact. The two things that I think I would hope that people see from the coaching world that they would bring back uh, are one is that everything in the coaching world is visible, right? There's wins and losses. Uh, there's like, everything is, is out there. And I feel like uh, sometimes teaching gets to be very, very, very private. Uh, in fact, when my mentor teacher in Chicago public schools told me that teaching would be the second most private thing I ever did. So you can put your mind where the first one is, right? Like, like that, that's what I was told by my mentor teacher. And so we, we tend to be behind closed doors compared to open up. So what would happen if we open up? So Ken, as an instructional coach, I would imagine, and I don't know your district at all, but I imagine there are some teachers that are really hesitant to have you come in and watch, right? Like that you have to say, hey, we're doing a coaching cycle. It wasn't an option. We're in, right? And so think about how different that is compared to Friday night lights or opening up the gym for volleyball or for wrestling or whatever the case is where everyone's there. The second thing is that I would hope for people to take is that, if you were in band, choir, theater, sports, whatever it happened to be, typically when we think back of our fondest memories of, of whatever that activity was and or our favorite coach, it was the person who pushed us the most and believed in us the most. And I wish that that's what we would take back is like demanding excellence from our students isn't going to diminish relationships. It just isn't. And in fact, a lot of times seeing people for greater than they are to me is the essence of leadership and the essence of relationship building. And so that's the the two things that I would hope would kind of correlate. When you look at that kind of holistically, that's exactly where the book finds, because this is just about human interaction. Like our, our job to me is the most human of all industries. And so what, what we have to do is figure out as humans, how do we connect and how do we better serve each other? And how do we help people like as leaders or and or as educators, how do we help other people get to where they want to go? And if I can help facilitate by providing a tool or articulating a tool that has worked for me to assist that process, then that's kind of why I felt called to try to write this book. I I love what you just said about demanding excellence, because when I think back to what has impacted me most in my, in the things I would say are successful in my career in education and, and related to it, it's my experience as being a college boxer for four years. It's it. I don't think back to any education class I had and, and I went to a good university, but it's the, the lessons I learned in that gym with my, my teammates day in and day out and, you know, stepping into the ring and traveling together and all those different things. And, and it's the same, you know, when I think back to my, my K to 12 career as well and demanding excellence is something that is not said enough in the classroom 
But when you go into classrooms where teachers have extremely high expectations, it's palpable. I mean, you can see it right away. It's the way the students walk in, the way they interact with each other, the way they approach work. The conversation of is this graded or not is never a part of the classroom. And it's really difficult for me to help t- to to help teachers with that that question because I get it all the time. What do you do when kids don't want to do it? What do you do when kids only want to do the work if it's graded? And it's difficult for me because one, I'm, I'm supporting teachers in the secondary world and I taught fifth grade for most of my career. So I didn't have that as much, but also I, I think I had extremely high expectations for my students as well. And so it's, it's something for teachers to, I think, reflect on. And, and I think, and, and I'd love your opinion on this before we jump into our, our exit ticket. Do you think there is a way to demand excellence, a successful way to demand excellence in a classroom out of your students? Or do you think the way we demand excellence from our students should really pair with who we are as a person? And I guess our what number we are one through nine. So I, I think <laughs> um so I think it's like the worst kept secret in every community because in your in your district right now, and of course don't say it, right? But you know who those teachers are or teacher or four or six or whatever that cadre is. Every, as soon as I walked into the district that I serve now, everyone's like, well, it's this teacher, it's this teacher and this teacher. And it's very clear. It's not necessarily the kid's favorite teacher, but at the end when they graduate, yeah, this was the best one we had. And when they come back at 20 after two years of college, like, thank goodness we had this teacher. Right. And so like, we know who those teachers are and we know that it's possible and we know that they're revered and we know that those are the ones that become legends, but somehow we still don't all want to be that. It's a very weird like dissonance that that approaches it. I don't think that depending on your number depends on the the level of expert expectation that you're going to uh, apply in your classroom. So for me, like I think the holy grail is just like, hey, kids need to think critically every hour of every day, and we have to make sure that that we're doing that. If we start there, that's our stepping stone to get to um, to get to rigor. The second thing is like the best teachers I know have some level of academic arrogance. Like they truly believe that kids must learn what they're teaching in order to be successful. And like, I think when you get a worldly view, like, you know, what was the determining factor of who won the battle of Bunker Hill probably doesn't matter, but I want a teacher to really believe that it matters, right? Like I want them to be so into it. Um, And so I think that naturally lends itself to some higher expectations when you have that belief that this is, vitally important for success um, in the long run. I think someone has to do too, is it, it, this, I don't know, maybe this is just the old man of me talking, but in this day and age, everybody wants to be liked, um, but nobody wants to be loved, right? Like there's some teachers I really loved to have some coaches I loved. I didn't necessarily like them every day. Like, you know, some of the, some of the things they made me do, some of the assignments they gave me, some of the grades they gave me, but, you know, again, like PJ was saying, they loved what they did. And everything they did for us was, you know, out of the love of, of education, getting us to, to learn. Um, they weren't necessarily, you know, concerned if we liked them at that point in time. And I think uh, sometimes teachers nowadays struggle with that. They want to be liked by the students and not just, uh, you know, be passionate about and, and love love them up a little bit. I think uh, this conversation could lead a lot of our listeners in many different ways, right? Um, 
do uh, first off you pro- ken you need to sign off and before you go to bed i feel like you need to take an official test even though brian could probably tell tell us what he thinks already but what is that next step what would you suggest whether they do not have perspective into Enneagram or they have it from a um, niche personal interest reason of the first few steps? And maybe those are read your book and you're welcome to say that. Um, but what are some of those first steps that take it from, wow, this feels beneficial. I could see how it connects to leadership and coaching and connecting to students. Um, and give them to that running launching off point, because there are so many rabbit holes you can, can go in. I'd say first things first is just, you know, take a test. I mean, there's so many free tests online to be able to take that, that you can take to just kind of narrow down where, what type that you are. And then obviously, yeah, I mean, you know, reading, you know, a book like ours, cracking the coaching code. Um, gives you a little bit more depth into, you know, what each type is and kind of what those behaviors are to, to be on the lookout for. But I think the first thing's first, you just got to take the test and just jump in um, and start, uh, you know, becoming more aware of, of what you do and, and which type that you are. And then once you do that, like you said, the the rabbit holes are kind of endless at that point in time. But uh, you just got to take the first step and, and start to identify who you are. Can I can I challenge that? And, and PJ, hopefully this doesn't change your answer. Um, I think about things like STEM, right? STEM can be glorified to say we're doing collaborative learning. That transition to actually making it a meaningful soft skill development mixed with high quality instruction. How do you kind of continue to say, hey, I took it, I know what number I am and transition it to really purposeful. So I'll give you an analogy quickly. Um, so I, I brought some dumbbells upstairs to lift weights, uh, a few months ago. And later that night I got up to use the restroom cause I'm at the age now where you don't sleep through the night. So if you guys aren't there, just wait. And, uh, so I, I bang my bare foot on a dumbbell. So I'm hopping around yelling four letter words. And my wife sits up in bed. She's like, what happened? Like, I kicked the dumbbell. And, uh, she's like, do you need anything? I'm like, no, no, let's go back to bed. So I, I hobble to the bathroom. By the time I come back, my wife has brought me ice, right. To take care of my foot because she's the nicest, sweetest person in the world. And uh, about three days later, the exact same thing happened. And so my wife sits up in bed. And she's like, what happened? I'm like, I kicked the dumbbell. And uh, she doesn't cuss um, very often. And she says, why don't you move the blanking dumbbells? And so that to me is the answer. As soon as you use the tool and figure out how to move one of your dumbbells that you keep stubbing your toe on, then that is when you have progress. And so whatever that thing is for you. So like for me, I know that when in doubt, I am going to take control of a situation. I am a, like, if I were to toot my horn, I'm a wonderful leader in crisis. I will be the person that steps up and takes it. The bad news for me is that like 98% of the time, there's not a crisis, right? So like I, if I'm trying to take control of every room, every time, then I am not simply going to be effective. So when I started to be able to recognize that, then I, then I was like, okay, I'm onto something because I had this self-defeating, self-sabotaging behavior, this dumbbell I kept kicking that all of a sudden, because I used this tool, I became self-aware enough or increased my self-awareness so that I could start to become a better person, a better leader, a better husband, a better father. And I was like, all right, now we're cooking with gas. And so 
whatever that is for a person. So like to use my wife as an example, when she, she's aware, but when she decides to change the behavior of continuing to distract herself from her primary purpose, then she won't be as stressed out. Like it just is going to, it's, and so once we can move the, the, that first set of dumbbells, I think it's, then we're, then we're rolling and we're going to be able to move forward. Can I, can I make what I think the suggestion is, and you guys please correct me, uh, in addition to what you shared? Um, just listening to your conversation, I just want to bring you know, a focus back to what you said before. The first part is the self-awareness component. The moment that you recognized and you guys shared, like being able to hear what are the attributes that you are great at, that's fluffy and wonderful. The areas that you struggle to be self-aware of those is growth. But I believe, and you would know much more than I would, winging is, and Ken, you won't understand this at all. It's the idea of kind of like shading into a different category. And of my understanding, the best amount of growth is when you push yourself away from your natural number into one of your winging numbers, because you have an ability to kind of go there. So that combination of, you know, self-awareness, but also, you know, expansion of yourself and not always falling into the same rut. Please correct me. I, I know it I'll from jump a in quickly and Brian can give you the more technical answer. The, the way that the thing that when I was learning the, the directional and, and under trying to understand it the same way that you're articulating it right now, Matt, was um, I read a single line that kind of flipped it for me. And it said that when you're at your all time healthiest, you're liberated. And that means essentially that you're liberated from your personality and your, and your predisposed behaviors. And so what the goal is that as you continue to move and you're in a healthy emotional state and you're at the, your heightened level of self-awareness, that truly you're situationally aware and you're going to adapt to create your behaviors to match the outcomes that you want to provide or to, per, to per be the best possible husband, father, leader, et cetera. So the goal is liberation in the sense of that I am liberated from whatever the prerequisite autopilot responses that I have, because like autopilot is autopilot. And it's a little bit different from all of us. And like when you work around people for a long time, you get to see what their autopilot is when things are. So for me, it's the tool has helped me to be on autopilot far, far less often and be much more conscious and aware. Um, your, your wing thing is a little bit off technically. So I don't know if Brian's going to get into it or, or not, but if you just please that, crush me if you need to. <laughs> so you get in the weeds quite a bit if you start talking about this too much, but the, what you're talking about is integration and disintegration. So, you know, yes, your, your Enneagram type has some basic things, but when you're healthy or when you're moving towards happiness and being satisfied, you, take on the characteristic of a different Enneagram type. So for eights, you know, we integrate to twos, which are the helpers. So, you know, we're going to give you the shirt off our back. So I know I am happy, healthy, and like, you know, aware of myself when I'm, you know, showing the behaviors of being helpful, you know, trying to lift other people up. I also know that when I get stressed out, I become the, the worst habits of a five, um, which are kind of the, you know, intellectual arrogance, kind of trying to control everything. So, you know, that's part of the self-awareness. I can feel myself now, like if somebody, you know, uh, the school board meeting, you know, somebody starting to yell at us, I can feel myself getting stressed and going towards that, that five Enneagram type, the bad part of that, where I'm, I just want to stand up and yell at them, tell them, you know, what the actual reality is. Um, but I can reel that back in now where, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, I would have gone down that road. Now I can stop myself and kind of push myself back toward that healthy 
healthy version of myself, which is, is more like a two, the helper. Um, and that's what I think you were trying to allude to there. So, so we'll just have to, we'll have to cut this, you know, cause I clearly don't know. I was, you know, my Chris, Chris and my wife has shared a few times, like, oh, you're, you're showing these attributes. I'm like, oh, so, this so is... there's, okay. there's nine types, but there's really 27 types is the way I like to look at it because so as an eight, as any number you wing to the, the number that's next to it. So if you're a seven, you can either be a seven, like a true blue hardcore seven or seven wing eight or seven wing six. And so when we, when Brian was talking about, like, we have this, this, this plethora, right? Like it's not binary as to where we're at in this, this fabric. And so like, I'm an eight wing nine, so I'm an eight, but when, when push comes to shove, like the, I show nine tendencies, not, not seven tendencies. Um, so there's, that's the wing that that's not about health or not health. That's just kind of where we are base. Got it. Mm-hmm. Matt, we won't cut the part where you tell me uh, I won't understand what you're talking about, and then you were wrong afterwards. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't, so, leave, don't leave the program. That'll be the first thing you put in there. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I, I, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. I don't want to cut it off, but uh, I do want to be cognizant of everyone's time. So we have an exit ticket, which is the same four questions we ask every guest every week. So I'm going to throw it to the both of you. Um, First as question. Eight, as eight, I assume these are going to be direct. I'm also answers, tell you I hate so, tickets. Yep. <laughs> well, do you want to rename? Do you want so, to rename so the segment for us? Tickets. My experience, Ken. You, as an instructional coach, you'll see this. If I'm in the classroom, I observe it. Somebody's like, "Hey, I gave an exit ticket. How'd it go? It went well. Well, why? Well, 21 to 27 got it right. Like, great. What if it was 22? Well, what do you mean? What if it was 20? what would you do differently? And the answer is almost always nothing. If the same teacher gave the exit ticket five minutes earlier, so it wasn't actually an exit ticket, most teachers go like crazy to remediate in the last five minutes. So I, I'm pro formative assessment in the form of that normally takes on as an exit ticket. I just encourage it five minutes prior to the bell because I think it actually leads to change. If we're going to collect things and get data and not change. There's no point in collecting it. I 100% agree with that. And ironically, I sent an email today uh, I was interacting with the teacher as a follow-up to the in-service I ran yesterday, and she was talking about um, doing ticket in to assess and, and group her students. And I told her how my exit ticket, I, although I didn't really use that term, but my exit ticket strategy was my exit ticket was a formative assessment for the following day. So it didn't even connect to what I had taught the students that day. It was to prepare me for the following day. So I like to look at how the end of class connects to the beginning of of the next class for really exactly what you just said. So for the last segment that we're not going to name of our show, first question is what is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? Are we t- doing it in order? I'll start. Either one, either care. one of you can Kids jump are in. Amazing BS detectors. So care deeply in your soul. Exactly. You go with that one, Brian? Yeah, that's 100% accurate, 100%. Perfect. So the next one is just a the best piece of advice that sticks with you. Um, and it could have come from a colleague, a supervisor, a student, or a business parker, partner, customer for Brian, what have you. Uh, best piece of advice I ever was given is, is someone always knows more than you. So you always got to be willing to learn. Um, I bring all of me wherever I go. It just helps me to remember that we're all human beings and we all got a million things going on. And if I'm bringing my entire set of baggage with me to every conversation that every other person I'm interacting with is bringing that same set of baggage, well, different set of baggage, but their baggage. 
Beautiful. So the school year goes in waves. Uh, pretty obvious. There are great days. There are tough days. Um, to simplify it, what is something educators could hear, should hear, need to hear to help power up through those moments of struggle? I would say that, um, and I just sent this to the, the people I coached the other day, is I just encourage people to reflect back on the hardest thing in life that they've overcome. And then to take two seconds to put that in perspective to what seems hard on a daily basis. And for the vast majority of people, the vast majority of times, what they've already overcome and come through is, is far more daunting than whatever the hard day was uh, and that it will go there. I think we have the most important jobs in the world. Um, I think that's an awesome opportunity, but an incredible responsibility. But the interesting thing is that we have so many interactions that the, the micro interactions that we have, if we screw up a lesson, if we were short with a kid one day, they, they are inconsequential as long as kids know and believe that you carry. I think it's just, you know, stick with the process. I mean, you never know how far reaching the things that you think, say, or do are going to affect the lives of children tomorrow. Um, you could be thinking that the, the whole year has been terrible and the end of the year, everything was, that was the best year ever had. So I think people tend to focus too much on the negative as opposed to just putting their head down, keep grinding, keep grinding forward. That's great. So the last question, it's easy to fall into facilitating a repetitive classroom. What do you think separates the teachers who are the ones constantly seeking to change, innovate, and adopt new teaching strategies? Two things for me. One is it alludes to what I said earlier. People that when they collect data, believe that any data we collect in the school system should inform adults on how they change their behavior. If When we collect any type of data that we're looking at, if it's not about adults changing their behavior, um, we're doing it for the wrong reason. And then second is just simply asking ourselves the question every single day, is the pedagogy we're using directly, did we thoughtfully match it to the content or are we just doing what we're comfortable with? Um, just simply asking that question, I think makes a, a world of difference. I think like we talked about before, just love what you do, just care. You know, if you, if you love what you do, you're gonna constantly innovate. You, you know, I've changed my practice 16 different times in 20 years because I love what I do. I'm constantly learning, constantly doing what's better for the patient. And I think, uh, you know, if you love what you do, teachers do the same. The, uh, the conversation has been wonderful, uh, even if I look like a fool at a, a part of it, but um, it is clear the camaraderie between you two, and it, we're excited to kind of see where you guys continue to take this, this practice going forward. What is the best way for our audience to stay tuned to what you guys have coming up and the, the discoveries and learning um, that you keep on coming across? Uh, we have our website at, uh, cracking the coaching code book.com. Um, it has a lot of our podcasts we've done, a lot of the writings we've done and kind of our up, upcoming, uh, speaking engagements that we're doing as well. Yeah. And I'm all over social at MCUSD soup. Um, for the remainder of this year, it'll change to OCUSD soup, uh, next year. And, uh, my website is www.pjcaposi.com and same thing. It's got links to hundreds of articles, podcasts, speeches, et cetera. Thank you guys so much. We'll link up to all of that in our show notes page or just by scrolling down or wherever you're watching or listening to this show. So just to, to wrap up, I would love to know what you think my number is only if you don't think it will affect my authentic assessment of myself. I don't know if that matters or not. So if it does, 
it, it does. Don't tell me, and then I'll follow up with an email after I take it. You can it follow up with an email. I, I don't want right. to put anything in your head. Okay. So, um, all right. Yeah. All right. So, Matt, so Ken, close your eyes for a second. All right. I'll close yeah, my eyes. You guys can show with your hands. Okay. All right. Audience, YouTube or Spotify, if you actually so want to see this. So, this is my guess. Watching. Brian will probably be better. It would either be this or this. Oh, oh, can you move it a little bit closer to the screen? Yeah, I, I was going to go. Right. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, was going to okay. go. That. This is torturous. Okay, we're good. So we're don't, good. don't worry. Every I, every type it, sucks. So right, don't worry. No, there there are definitely. <laughs> uh, Ken, I'll tell you, you're not a seven. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I, I I knew that. I knew that. One, when you said you were a seven, and two, once you descri- started describing a seven. Yeah. Um, oh, so were you guys in sync or? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, and a follow-up question to that, that I also want to link in our show notes. You reference there's hundreds of places you can take this online. Is there a particular online test or website that you would recommend our listeners and myself go to that you think is the best or the most authentic or? All of the free ones are going to. Yeah, all the free ones are going to be relatively similar in it. If you're willing to spend $10, there's a really um, kind of more statistically valid one at EnneagramInstitute.com. Uh, I think it's I think it's 11 bucks. Uh, so that's that's one that we use with our employees and, and our staff. It's a it's about five times as long. Get you a more statistically valid result. Um, the other ones are shorter. And most likely when you take it, Ken, you'll find that you have two or three that are very close to being your top. And then you're going to have to fig- do the the reading to determine what it is. If you took a test that was five or six times the length, it would be a much more clear answer for you. And I will just say, and it's going to take the test. You need to answer the questions, how you actually are and how you want to be. Um, we get a lot of people taking the test that, Oh, I, you know, this is how, this is what I'd like to be. I'm like, well, that's not going to help us discover who you are. Um, so you need to answer it, how you actually, um, you know, behave 90% yeah. in, of the, time. in the way that, and even after we say that to people, when we're giving workshops, they still don't listen. And so when the easiest way to say, answer it like your spouse would answer for you. And then we get the true answer typically. Or have your spouse answer for you. (laughs) Yeah. I had my wife read me the questions and I would give an answer and she'd be like, are you sure about that? So, All right. I will, uh, I'll do the full test for, uh, for the true result. And if I can get it done before I publish this podcast, I'll jump back on and record by myself and announce my, my answer compared to what you guys said, but I will follow up with you guys via email. There, there is no excuse and let you know. You better. Oh, you know, I will, you know, I'm going to follow through on that. Um, so seriously guys, thank you so much. I've, I've loved this conversation. I appreciate uh, the information you provided. I would highly encourage our listeners to check out the websites, check out your book. I'm going to be doing the same uh, with the book definitely after this conversation. So, so thank you so much. Th- and thank you both for what you do for education, knowing there is a superintendent who is, writing books with a school board president on this topic specifically that benefits coaching benefits teaching and just now sitting on a podcast um, in the middle of the night with two teachers that you've never met before just speaks volumes to who you are and what you're doing for education and having leaders like you in public education is so valuable and so important so thank you so much and, and your districts are clearly very lucky uh, to have you as a, as a part of their program for as long as they have. So seriously, thank you so much for that. Um, so Matt, why don't you take us on out of here? Powered down this episode. Without a doubt, you guys have left us feeling powered up. Thanks for the time. 
And to everyone else, we look forward to the conversation next week. We'll talk. Hey, listeners. So as promised, I'm jumping back on here. It is now 1115 at night. We just finished recording with PJ and Brian. Matt, I finished recording our intro. I went right to taking the official test for the the anagram test. I went right to the Institute. It is $12. I'll link up the test as well in our show notes page. So if you were not watching and you were only listening, uh, PJ had predicted me as a six or a one. Brian had predicted me as a one, which is titled the reformer. Uh, after we recorded, after we ended our recording, PJ did say, based on what I had said at the end of the podcast, after he had guessed that he would actually change his guess to exactly what Brian had said as well as a one. So I just took the test, uh, again, first time doing it, and my top uh, number came in as type eight, titled The Challenger with 29 points, type three, the achiever with 24 points and type one came in at third, the reformer at 18 points. So I emailed the results over to Brian uh, and PJ. I, I sent them over to Matt as well. Um, so just to follow up for you there. And I'm also curious, I, I asked them, you know, I've never looked at these scores before. I'm not sure what this spread means. Is 29 and 24 close for your top two? Is that farther away for your top two? So I'll be curious to learn a little bit more that, about that. And, and I, I'm sure I'll be able to get that from their book as well. So thank you as always for listening. I thought this was a fun way to end the podcast here for us. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on YouTube. Each week we get to talk to amazing educators who are making a positive impact on the lives of students, their colleagues, administrators, and education as a whole. It's been such a privilege every week to be able to talk to these incredible individuals, learn from them, grow with them, and better myself and all of education through these conversations. If you haven't already, please consider sharing this with a colleague, someone who can benefit and be powered up from the experience of listening to these incredible conversations. Because of Powered Up, we are powering education by empowering you.